You're listening to the Gospel of Mark, a series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Holy Father, we thank you that we come before a God who is worthy of all of our praise. A God who saw us in our sin, our rebellion, sent his only son to die in our place. Lord, as we come to the communion service today, I pray that you would direct our attention, our eyes, our focus, our hearts to the cross of Calvary where the Savior died for us. Lord, I pray that in this service, Christ would be honored and glorified, that your word would be clear, and that your spirit would work in us. Thank you, Lord, and we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. Today we are celebrating the Lord's Supper, and in our church family, this is an incredibly important event. It is the time that we gather in unity to look together at the cross, to remember the sacrifice that was made for us. It's important because we have been invited to the table by God the Father. It's important because the invitation came at the cost of His only begotten Son, it's important because it's been given for those who have new life by the Spirit of God. Our last opportunity to do this together was at the start of December last year. And so this is the first communion service of 2021. And i got to tell you, I have missed it. I've missed the opportunity to gather with our church family in unity. And there's a sense of true Christian fellowship in this service that is hard to find elsewhere. The challenge when preaching before a service like this is simply not to mess it up. (laughs) So we'll see how that goes. Uh, When pastor asked me to preach today, I first considered the idea of of moving away from the the book of Mark um, and coming up with some kind of sermon that was specifically for communion. But I had been going over this parable that that we're in today uh, for a while, and as I thought about what I wanted to preach, this the story that Jesus tells came back to my mind over and over again. And as I thought about it, I realized that, that this parable he tells actually teaches us a lot about the sacrifice of Christ, about the mercy and the love and the justice of the Father. And so I think it's an appropriate uh, text for us to be in. And so um, before we zoom in on this parable, I want to step back and put it in its context. At the start of Mark chapter 11, we enter into... The Passion Week of Christ, the final week of Christ's life. On Sunday, he rides in and creates this massive scene as he's coming in on a, on a donkey. And he's got people laying palm branches and cloaks before him and praising him and worshiping him and accepting him as their king and Messiah. And that made the religious leaders very angry. Then, on Monday, he creates a quite different scene by flipping over the tables of the money changers in the temple and driving people out of the temple, and calling the temple a den of thieves. And as he does that, he's calling out the religious leaders who are supposed to be caring for it. They've allowed it to become a den of thieves. His actions here make the religious leaders even more furious. They were on a mission to destroy him, and he's adding fuel to the fire. On Tuesday... He is confronted by the religious leaders. They are going to ask him a question about his authority, and they believe that this question will expose him as a fraud 
and completely humiliate him? Well, Jesus responds with his own question, a very simple one. And when he does that, their response exposes them and humiliates them. And so Jesus says, well, if you're not going to answer my, if you don't know where John's authority comes from, I'm not going to answer your question. But I will tell you a story. And so in Mark chapter 12, Jesus addresses the priests and the scribes and the elders with this story. And before we get into Mark 12, just remember that this is taking place on Tuesday, that Jesus will be put to death on, death on Friday, only three days away. The symbol that we are celebrating today will happen two nights from now. Mark 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard. He set a hedge about it. He digged a place for the wine fat, and he built a tower, and he lent it out to husbandmen, and then went into a far country. The story begins with a setting that is familiar both to us and to them who lived in the first century. It is a fairly normal thing to buy a piece of property, to build something on it, and to lend it out to people who will then, in turn, pay rent. The owners here paid rent with a predecided portion of the garden, of the fruit, of the harvest. So we are introduced to this certain man who creates a garden of his own. And, and it, Jesus is careful to say that this man was very involved in the process. He purchased the land. He planted the vineyard. He built a wall around it to keep the animals out. He dug a trough for the juice to be carried off to after it was crushed by the wine press. He constructed a tower that would serve as a place of safety and, and a place where uh, the gardener could stand and, and watch for danger. Upon completion of all of this, when this garden is ready to grow and it has everything that it needs, he then lends it out to tenant farmers, husbandmen, who will work the land while he travels. Verse number two. And at the season, he sent out to the husbandman a servant, that he might receive from the husbandman the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty. So harvest time comes around. The landowner sends a servant to collect his portion of the harvest. And the Greek is clear. This is not all of the fruit. This is just what was rightfully his. And a shocking thing happens in verse number 3. Rather than paying what they owed, they beat him and sent him away empty. And this is strange to me because when you think about this story, where do you think that this servant is going to go after he's been beaten and sent away? He's going to go straight back to the master, right? And so, like, these guys seem so foolish to me that they're going to try and keep a little bit of fruit for themselves because, and in the process, they're going to send away a servant who's just going to go get them in trouble. And the, clearly what the master is going to do is send a cavalry. He's going to send an army who's going to come and, and put these guys in their place and punish them seems so strange to me. They are going to be in trouble. But, in my mind, this is where Jesus' story goes off the rails a little bit. Verse number four. Again, he sent out to them another servant. And at him they cast stones, and they wounded him in the head, 
and he, they sent him away shamefully handled. Why in the world would the owner send another servant? It seems crazy to me. It didn't work the first time. These guys now need to be punished. They deserve to be punished. Why not send in somebody who's capable of that? But he doesn't. And this time the treatment worsens. They throw stones at his head, they insult him, and they humiliate him, and then they send him away. So surely in verse 5, the owner will come to his senses. And again, he sent another. And him they killed. And many others, beating some and killing some. What is going on? Number three is killed. So beaten, and then stoned and insulted, and then killed. Hey, maybe it's time to come up with another plan. When I read this story when I was, when I was younger, <laughs> I remember thinking, this landowner is so dumb. Right? I mean, that's, that's really how it comes across. Because, and and I, I honestly think the absurdity of his actions is what is supposed to draw our attention. Because it is absurd. And so he's sending servant after servant after servant. Giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And what happens is, every single time they are rejected, beaten, and killed. Surely in verse 6, he'll get it figured out. Having yet, therefore, one son is well-beloved, he sent him also unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. They took him, they killed him, they cast him out of the vineyard. Now when Jesus says he had one son, he is well-beloved, it must be ringing some bells. Because in Matthew 3.18, there was a voice from heaven that came and said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then again, in Matthew chapter 17, 5, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In, in other words, God had already said from heaven to Jesus, so the people could hear, This is my well-beloved Son. And So when Jesus says, He had a Son, His well-beloved, they knew He was pointing toward Himself. They should have. We are meant here to imagine a father who is deeply in love with his only child. He's sending him to the tenants with hopes that, he will, that they will reverence him, that they will respect him. Instead, the tenants see an opportunity. And I think it's important to understand that the opportunity that they saw was ridiculous. It, it wasn't true. It didn't make any sense. If you kill the heir, you don't get everything that, that belongs to him. The father's still alive, and, and the... Ownership of the land would transfer, if the father was dead, it would transfer to somebody else in the family. At no point are they becoming owners of all of this, but somehow in their crooked minds, they figured out that, that this sin will cause this benefit. And I think it's just a reminder to us that sin is very deceptive. When we think something's going to be the case, and we're following a path thinking sin is going to bring this outcome, we are probably deceived. So, Jesus is now going to ask a very serious question. 
And I have a hunch that as he does this, it's so quiet that a pin could drop. And so I think he looks toward the religious leaders, and he says, what shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? In Mark's gospel, it, it seems like Jesus answers his own question, but in Matthew 21, 41, it's actually made clear that it's the religious leaders that provide the answer. He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard to others. And what I imagine here is that Jesus looks at them and he says, what do you think the, vineyard, the Lord of the vineyard should do? And they think that at least at this point, they know the right answer. Because right? last time he asked them a question, they had nothing at all to say. And so now he asks a question, like, oh, we know the Lord should come back and destroy them. They deserve judgment. They deserve justice. And I think Jesus quietly nods his head. Verse 10. And have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing. And is, is it marvelous in our eyes? So the obvious question is, what should the owner do? And the obvious answer is, he should destroy them. And then he looks at them, and this is like the mic drop moment when he quotes Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. You realize that the stone that the builders rejected, the prophet said, would become the headstone of the corner, and this is what the Lord would do? And who are they rejecting right now? rejecting Jesus. And he's saying to them, do you not see that your rejection of me is causing God to make me the headstone of the corner? And in that moment, they finally realize who they are in this story. They finally get it. Not just, they were, they were tracking with what the story was saying, but they didn't understand what it was about. And here they finally get it. These wicked tenants should be destroyed. Everything that they laid false claim on, the temple, authority, truth, would all be taken from them. And everything that belongs to the owner would be given to others who would pay what he is due. In a moment, they understand. Verse 12. Here is their reaction. They sought to lay hold on him, but they feared the people. For they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. And they left him, and they went on their way. And so Jesus publicly calls them out. They are the wicked tenants who kill the prophets and eventually the son. And they leave with their tail between their legs. Now as a pastor, as a preacher, I like this parable because its meaning is so clear. Nobody wonders who the landowner is. The landowner is God, the Father, who made all things. He built the nation of Israel. He planted the seed. He built the wall. He built the tower. He set up the wine press. He digged the trough. This is God the Father. Nobody wonders who the vineyard represents. It's, it's the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. It's God's people. We don't wonder who the servants are. These are the prophets who faithfully proclaimed God's word to a wicked generation. And what's interesting when you read the prophets is that so often when they're speaking, they're actually directing their words toward the leadership. That so often it was Israel's leaders who was driving this um, group of people away from their God. 
Sometimes it was toward more rules. Sometimes it was toward false gods. But they were moving them away from God. We don't wonder who the wicked tenants are. The wicked tenants are the religious leaders who sought to keep the glory and the honor that belonged to God, that belonged to Jesus, for themselves. So much of what they did here was caused by their pride. They couldn't imagine bowing a knee to Jesus. Instead, they wanted everybody else to look up to them. We don't wonder who the Son is. The Son is Jesus, who came on a mission to glorify the Father and to call His people back to Him. And I think in this parable, we're just reminded that Jesus is very aware why He came and what was ahead of Him. He knew that the Son would be killed. He was walking toward that very willingly. Finally, we know who the new tenants are. These are, I believe, the, the apostles, the leaders of the early church, and, and, and even the church itself. And I believe that as we look at those who are called to be stewards of God's vineyard, we would even say that today it is our job to be stewards of the vineyard of God and to give Him the fruit and the glory and the honor that He deserves. So, in this parable, there are countless lessons to be learned. But in light of the communion service today, I want us to think for a moment about how this parable helps us to understand the Lord's table better. And I think there are three things that we can learn about God the Father, who God is, and why He did what He did, that can help us as we celebrate today. First thing is this. We learn that the Father loves relentlessly. He loves us relentlessly. When Jesus tells the parable, the details matter. And the fact that he takes the time to to show that that it was the owner who built everything, who dug, who planted, who was involved in that whole process. He got everything ready so that the tenants could come in and just work the land. God was involved in all of that. Why? Because he's personally invested. He's hands-on. He was timely in sending the servants to receive the harvest. He was persistent in his pursuit. It's a crazy thing that he sent servant after servant after servant, and then his son, just to, re- to claim some fruit. It doesn't make any sense at all. That, that part of the story would never happen in real life, because it's not worth it. Not worth it to send a servant to be killed, and another one to be killed, and eventually to send your son to be killed, just for a little bit of fruit, unless you love that fruit. Unless that vineyard means more to you than just you apples or something. And so he loved them relentlessly. He didn't give up. He didn't start over. He didn't throw in the towel. And I think we see so much kindness in God in his repeated attempts to enjoy the fruit of the vineyard. What love would drive a God to pursue his people like that? There's a song that I'm sure you've heard. It's called Reckless Love. And there's a little bit of controversy over what the word reckless is supposed to mean and if it's, that's appropriate to call God's love reckless. And if you understand the word reckless to mean acting with a lack of care or a lack of caution, being careless and irresponsible, and I'd say God is probably not careless and irresponsible. But I do think that, that the song is, the intention of the meaning is, is different than that. And so if if what we mean by reckless is willing to endure enormous consequences 
for the sake of undeserving sinners, then yes, that is reckless love. On the cross, we see God in the flesh enduring excruciating pain, being ruthlessly humiliated for his own creation, by his own creation. What a crazy thought. The God who spoke the world into existence is now hanging on the cross naked, being humiliated and beaten and tortured by the people he made. It is absurd that God loves who he does and to the extent that he does. But here's the amazing truth. He does. He does love us that way. Here's the words of that song. It says, When I was your foe, Still your love fought for me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it. Still you gave yourself away. That is the amazing love of God. And I do not want you to leave today without being reminded that there's a Father in Heaven who loves you that way, and you might look up and say, God, I don't deserve your love. I, you don't, like, I am I'm awful, I'm terrible. I, he knows. He sent Jesus to the cross for you, for sinners. None of us get to stand before God and think that we deserved it. So you are deeply loved, passionately loved, by your Father in heaven. The second thing we see in this parable is that the Father's mercy is astounding. Astounding is something that is, makes no sense. It happened, but it doesn't make any sense at all. And the part of the parable that I find most absurd is when the owner is sending servant after servant after servant. Send one, and if you don't, if, if that doesn't work, send in the cavalry. Don't send your son to cavalry. Wait, that was the opposite. Calvary, cavalry. <laughs> oh, man. I thought I would get it, but I didn't. Um, <laughs> send in the cavalry. Don't send your son to Calvary. There you go. The servants represent the prophets. So when we, when we look at the Old Testament, we see God's mercy in a brand new light. Right? If we only take the servants who wrote books of the Bible, so this isn't including guys like Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, just, just the men who wrote books of the Bible, you have a 400-year period where Israel was turning from God, and God was saying, you need to repent, you need to come back to me. There is judgment coming. And then even as they're, they're entering into that judgment, he's still calling them back, even after they're in Babylon, in Assyria. They're still being called back. Warning after warning after warning. And what did they do to these prophets? They didn't welcome them. They didn't listen to them. They beat them, tortured them, humiliated them, and killed them. Why would God send one more? Because His mercy is incredible. And do you realize that when we look at this story, that with every new servant that came, these Tenants had the opportunity to repent and make it right. And they chose not to. Time and time again, 
They chose their sin over the relationship with the Father. When I think about mercy, myself being merciful, I think of giving someone a second chance. Somebody's wronged you, you're going to show them mercy. Your child has done the wrong thing, you're going to show them mercy this time. They're going to get a second chance. What is it when the person who's being showed mercy kills the messenger? Over and over again. That's more than human mercy. That's divine mercy. That's, that's amazing. In Matthew 23, verses 34, Jesus is again addressing them. He says, Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. They were guilty because everybody God sent to them, they had beaten, tortured, killed. They didn't want to hear God's plan of salvation. They wanted to make up their own. And so God kept sending them. He is just as full of mercy today as he was back then. Think of my own life and and the fact that I heard the truth. I, I heard the full gospel when I came to a Baptist church the first time when I was nine or ten years old. And then for six or seven years, I was, had the opportunity to hear over and over again. I had a church of people praying for our family for such a long time. And I actually came to the youth group for like six months, almost every Friday, hearing the gospel and rejecting it. And it wasn't like this outright like, no God, I want nothing to do with you, I just like basketball. It was, I like the Christian community. I believe that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross. I just wasn't at the point where I wanted to accept him as my personal savior. And so, for that long, God showed me mercy. Every time I heard the truth, it was another opportunity for me to repent, and I didn't. So finally, at 16 years old, I can't. And all I'm saying right now is that God shows us mercy even when we don't realize it. And what's amazing, it's not just before we're saved. But it's as believers, we need his mercy, right? Don't we screw up still? Every day I need God's mercy. He is in that same business today. When destruction and death are at our doorstops, we wonder, why didn't I repent? Why didn't somebody tell me? Why didn't he warn me? And the truth is, he did. Time and time again. One servant after another. One prophet after another. And so what does God do? He sends them his son. That is incredible mercy. And So we look at God's love and we look at God's mercy and we are amazed. But lest we think that God is just weak. The third thing I want to see in this parable is that the Father will execute justice. We see here the eventual judgment on the tenants. It was the religious leaders that actually came forward and said, these tenants deserve to be destroyed. They deserve justice. And they were right. Do you realize that as we think about God's love and God's mercy, that those things really don't mean very much if we don't have this part? We don't have justice. I, I think that, that those, the mercy of God, the love of God, they stand on the justice of God. 
think about it. If, if there is no hell to shun, then what is mercy? Well, mercy is not get when you, getting what you deserve. Well, there is no punishment. There's nothing that I deserve. So mercy is meaningless without justice. What is God's love if it's only being show, um, showered on people who deserve it? It means nothing if we aren't sinners who deserve judgment. The fact that God loved me is so amazing to me because I know who I am. And I know what I deserve. He chose to love a guy like me even though I am so undeserving of that love. That's why his love is amazing. I want us to leave here today rejoicing in God's love and mercy, but I also want us to remember eventually sinners and all sin will be dealt with. Don't misunderstand God's patience and his long-suffering for his complacency. He is a just judge, and someday everyone stands before him. My friends, this is why as believers, as Christians, we are constantly looking to the cross. This is why we come together and celebrate this today. Because we know what we're remembering is that all of our punishment, all of the sin that we had participated in, that incurred the wrath of God, was paid for on the cross by Jesus. That he took the justice that I deserved on himself. That's what's so incredible. This is the place at the cross where justice and love and mercy meet. One of the things I like so much about the Lord's Supper is the unity that it seems to bring. Because what's happening here is all of us together refocus our attention on the same place, on the cross. In unison, we look to the cross and we see our Savior broken and bloody for our sins. And so when I look, when I think about the fact that he bled for me, that he bled for each of us, I realize that none of us have a reason to be elevated. Nobody is above one another. We're all at the same level at the foot of the cross. And then when I realize that he bled for my neighbor, that he bled for the the person in the pew next to me, or a few rows over, then I begin to realize that we are all in this together. That the God who passionately loved me and showered his grace on me also loves them with that same passionate love. I hope that brings us some unity. In light of this amazing mercy and grace and love, we examine ourselves, we examine our lives. Is the way I'm living consistent with what I say I believe? It, it, is it worthy of the gospel that I've received? And so today with these symbols, we remember his death. We remember his sacrifice and his suffering. But we also celebrate in his victory. Because Jesus died, and then he rose again. And he had victory over sin, over death, and over the grave. And if we are being honest, those are our greatest enemies. So as we approach the Lord's table, let us keep in mind these three truths. God is love. God is merciful. And God is just. Father, I thank you for this time we've had together already. I thank you for your word, the story that Jesus told, this parable. It reminds us of how loving and merciful that our God is. And Lord, I pray that as we approach your table, you'd help us to remember, you'd help us to, to think about 
what it means for God the Son to become a human being, then to suffer and die, to be humiliated and tortured on the cross. Lord, I, I pray that we would realize that it was our sin that put Christ there, that we would be once again amazed by your forgiveness and your grace, and that we would use this time to examine ourselves and to live lives that worship you. Thank you, Lord. We pray you'd bless. In Jesus' name, amen.